to Cantus Firmus. This is Cody Cook, and I'm talking today with Dr. Mike Habits. Habits? He's pronounce it for me. <laughs> Mike Habits. He's the Dean of uh, Faculty at Cary Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, he's also a lecturer in systematic theology and the author of a number of books. Uh, most significantly for our discussion today uh, is a book he wrote called Theosis and the Theology of Thomas Torrance. And I've asked him on today to uh, discuss uh, in particular the significance of the Incarnation, uh, which is this idea of uh, God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ and, and its significance for our doctrine of salvation. Thank you for being here, Dr. Hobbits. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, um, is, is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself or for folks who may, may want to know a little bit more about you jumping in? So, you're, so what, what, is, what does it mean to be the Dean of Faculty at Cary Baptist College? Well, that's a good question. Cary Baptist College, um, New Zealand's a small country, 4 million people, very small Christian population, maybe uh, 15%. And so, Baptists in New Zealand are about 45,000. So, we're very small. We're interdenominational. So we're a college of about 300 students and maybe eight full-time faculty plus some adjuncts. So it's more like a department in, a, in an American seminary, really. So Dean of Faculty, I'm in charge of um, Director of Research, looking after the faculty, particularly their research, uh, research and writing projects, and then having an eye on curriculum. Um, so that keeps me busy for um, maybe you know, 0.4 of the job, and then uh, the rest of it's lecturing, writing. Um, I'm married with two, two children, nine and 11. They just had birthdays, that's right. So it's their last week of school here before our long summer break, because of course we're Southern Hemisphere. So I'm sitting in um, uh, 28 degrees, that's Celsius, uh, weather down here, whereas you're probably sitting in snow up there. So um, <laughs> very different climate, very different context. Yeah, very much so. so um, this is kind of like my, my Christmas episode. So I, I wanted to, I think, focus in a little bit on um, on the issue of the incarnation. And, and so I've heard it said before that Easter is the most significant day on the church calendar since it, it points most directly to our salvation as accomplished by Christ. And I don't want to take anything away from Easter, um, but I think that maybe we've missed something pretty significant in our observance of Christmas. And I also think you actually have some, some pretty helpful insights on that topic, uh, particularly as it relates to this idea called theosis, which I want to unpack for, for people who are listening here. We may not be familiar with it. So to start off, can you tell us what the doctrine of theosis is? Uh, give us some idea of its biblical foundations and, uh, and maybe a short synopsis of kind of how it's, how it's been manifested in the church's theology throughout the centuries. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a couple of days lecture there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You're right. The the I mean, Easter certainly is the the central part of the Christian calendar. 
uh, where we recognize Christ's, Christ's death and resurrection three days later. And, and without that, you know, as Paul said, our preaching's in vain. So th there's no attempt by any Christian, myself or, or anyone else included, to diminish that. But within the Gospels and within the Epistles, Easter is couched within a context, as is everything, of course. And what we've tended to forget, many of us think, myself included, particularly in the West, is in what might be called an overemphasis on on the Easter account to the relative neglect of the life of Christ. So his his miraculous um, conception, his birth, his his ministry, his words, everything that preceded. And so in a lot of older textbooks on Christology and soteriology on the person and work of Christ, they're basically just these um, very short throat clearing exercises about Jesus was good and perfect and holy and all the rest, sinless, in order simply to talk about atonement, about his death on the cross, his blood at the cross, his breath at the cross, what happened at the cross. And, and that's, for many of us, would be seen to be an overemphasis to the relative neglect of the life of Christ. So what happens when we read scripture, when we see uh, the totality of what Christ has done in his life, death, resurrection, and importantly, in his ascension and his ongoing ministry. So we're really just trying to read scripture more holistically to, to locate Christ more clearly. And, and the argument is, and I think it's borne out in the scholarship, is that when we do that, the cross of Christ becomes even more um, central, becomes even more important. It's put in greater relief, so it becomes more um, um, important as we understand what Christ has done. So it doesn't you know, neglect that. There, there are lots of ways to go about then articulating that type of a account of Christ's life. And one of the older accounts, one of the oldest that we probably have, is what is called in Greek theosis, um, T-H-E-O-S-O-S -S in, in English. Theosis or deification or divinization, those are the Latin terms. Um, they might have some nuances, but really they're, they're, they're synonyms, meaning the same thing. And theosis is an attempt by uh, Christians, Christian thinkers, to say um, God becomes human in Christ in order that humans may participate in the divine nature. And that would be 2 Peter 1.4, you know, direct quote. And so people like Athanasius and, and the Cappadocians and many in the early church, right up to John of Damascus, who sort of summarizes all this patristic teaching, and then into Gregory Palamas and Aquinas and, and the rest of them through the Middle Ages and then into the Reformation and on and on it goes. They, they, they use language like God becomes human so that humans can become divine or God. They, they don't mean that in a literalistic essential sense, because that, as any Christian knows, would be horrific, that that me, a creature, could literally become God. Well, that's blasphemy, uh, and it's probably a form of idolatry. So they're using this idea of theosis as a picture, as a, um, a, a word picture, as a analogy, as a way to account for the utterly stunning and astounding claim that we humans are creatures created in the image of God in order to participate in the divine life in a creaturely way. So theosis and, and the theology it encapsulates is, um, it's abrasive it's to our modern ears, our sensibilities. It's, it's offensive to many. It's, it's too good to be true. 
um, so good, in fact, that that many Christians today in the West particularly think that it's just ruled out of court. That, that's too intimate between a creature and the creator. And if that was meant literally, we become divine, as I said, then I'm with them. But that's not how the Christian tradition has used it. That's not how Athanasius or the Cappadocians or, or anybody in the East or West has used it in Christianity. So if we keep it in context, we're really talking about um, lots and lots and lots and lots of scripture and just trying to theologically account for them. So I've already mentioned 2 Peter 1.4, uh, this promise that we will become, says Peter, partakers or participants of the divine nature. Um, Psalm 82.6, where we're promised that, that we will be called sons, that we will become sons of God, but that we'll become gods, quite literally, small g. And Jesus repeats that, Sermon on the Mount. Or, or Hebrews 3.1, we're promised that we'll become partakers of Christ. Or Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. You know, this, this radical re-identity. Um, what about all the texts in Scripture that talk about uh, humans being created like God in the image of God, the, the Imago Dei, as it's called, Genesis 1.26, but, but all the way through into the New Testament where Jesus Christ is uniquely the image of the triune God and humans, males and females, we're created in the image of Christ so that through him and in him and by him and for him, we share this divine identity, not absolutely, but in a relative way as creatures. Um, what about texts that talk about the divine sonship, Galatians 4.5, Romans 8.15, where we become part of the family of God, united to him, or texts that call us to imitate God, um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you know, 4 to 8, um, be, be, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Really? Mm. Uh, be holy. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, have the same attitude that Christ had. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider equality of God a thing to be exploited, made himself nothing. And that whole text, as Christological as it is, is really ethical. It's about how we should imitate and we should should be like Christ. Um texts that talk about our, our spiritual union with God, 1 Corinthians 6.17, or that we'll become new creations in the eschaton, 2 Corinthians 5.7, and already by the Spirit in the present, this is starting to happen. Uh, we're in Christ. We're in the Spirit over 220 times in Paul's epistles, and we could go on and on. So, so while in, when we first think of theosis, that we become in a sense like God, we've only got a few texts that come to mind. Actually, when we think about it for five minutes, we've just got this great expanse of scripture that promises that we're created in the image to be conformed to the image. And in the process of that, we participate in the divine life such that in the resurrection, this is heightened and we actually become not God, that's blasphemy, but we become even more like God. Now that needs unpacking to be sure, but that's the stunning claim of Christianity from the early church that a number of us, many of us today, want to reclaim around this idea or, uh, or, or analogy of theosis. Well, it seems like there's kind of this narrative in Scripture that this kind of fits into that when you read the Genesis account, you know, humans and God are, are close together. Uh, they, you know, they, they fellowship with one another, talk with each other, that being made in the image of God, I, I think as John Walton sort of thinks about it, is that they're, they're using this this language uh, in, in the in the Near East of uh, the way a king would set up an image 
uh, that would be sort of like his representative, so that we um, have this 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 position under God um, of of sort of uh, you know tending the earth and and and, and you know uh, having dominion over it, and that we lose that that sin sort of creates this chasm, and that we can't cross it, but that God crosses it and takes on human flesh in order to unite humanity and and, and God once again. Right, and so that, like, when you read Hebrews, I believe it's the, the, the Epistle of Hebrews uh, describes Christ as our brother, and so that you know we we, are, we do enter into this kind of family relationship as a result of God taking on humanity, and 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 that's it, you know Paul and I think John also use this language of union with Christ that maybe is a little less um, uh, controversial than like theosis or divinization, and I think evangelicals like to use the word Christ likeness. And I yeah, think th yeah. that's kind of that notion that, that Christ has transformed humanity and that we can participate in that transformation. He's transformed it on, 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 on account of that divinity entering into humanity. Is that maybe another way to sort of say that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, lots of reformed people don't like the idea of theosis. They think it's it's too close or too it's melding humanity and divinity too much. And I, I respect that, and that's okay. Um, what they settle for is a, a really strong doctrine of both union with Christ, imitation of Christ, but then participation in Christ. And when we start talking about these strong doctrines of participation, where our identity, you know, that Galatians 2.20 stuff, our identity is now so bound up with Christ that, that the good that we do is not, is not innate to ourselves. It's Christ and the Spirit working through us, such that 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 we become and we are increasing becoming one with with Christ, so that that identity becomes more intimate. Then we might start talking about a more um, uh, theopoietic sort of doctrine. The only thing that theosis, those that want to adopt theosis, like I would, the only thing that we would perhaps press back on a little bit about the account you gave in Scripture, which we would agree is true is that theosis wants to say slightly more. And again, to, to Western Christians is one of the lessons perhaps that we might be able to learn from, from our Eastern um, uh, brothers and sisters, is that we often give a narrative of Scripture that starts in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20. Of course, Genesis 3 is that miserable text, the fall of humanity, uh, Adam and Eve, and the fall which affects all their, their descendants, and God you know, curses them and judges them and then gives them a sacrifice and, and way out. And we get the proto-euangelion, you know, the first promise of the coming of Christ to redeem. And, and then Revelation 20, this, this great judgment seat and separation of, of, of uh, sheep and goats and nations, etc. And that's often the Western paradigm. It's this arc between Genesis 3, judgment, Romans 20, judgment. What theosis and advocates that, that want to uh, put forward this view would argue is that we need a Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 view. Genesis 1, already from the start, as Catherine Tanner has said in her book, Christ the Key, already from the start at creation itself, creation is graced. We don't have to wait till Genesis 3 for grace. Grace mm -hmm. is, is God even wanting, the triune God even wanting and then creating creatures, all the creatures and all the environment and specifically humans, male and female. And so already we have this graced relationship in which we need grace because there are these, if you like, these boundaries or these barriers that as creatures we have to somehow overcome. There's there's an ontological barrier. Where creature God is creator, 
what do we know of a creator? What could we ever know of the creator? What could we ever know of, of the one true being, the one true God, who is triune, who is majestic, who is sovereign, who is transcendent, who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent? You know, we could go on and on. We really don't have a clue what we're talking about because we can't conceive of anything that's quite like God, who is everywhere and nowhere at the same time, if that makes sense. Uh, so there's this ontological barrier. There's this epistemological barrier. There's a there's a, a barrier of knowledge. There there's a there's a moral barrier. There, there's all sorts of stuff even before sin enters that that separate us from the the Creator because we're creatures, and we want to see uh, say that that salvation isn't simply a plan B, a rescue option that God gives. Uh, it's it's right there from the very beginning, so that. If you adopt a theology, some sort of a theology of theosis, then you sort of commit yourself, I think, to, to maybe four things. First of all, you commit yourself to what might be called a teleological view of creation, a view that says creation from its inception has a purpose that God puts into it. He creates and he, he creates the first day, it's good. The second, it's good. The third is good. You know, right at the sixth day, male and female, it's very good. And as I say to my students each year, I think we're supposed to read that. And then in unison as a church, we should reply, very good for what? I mean, what are we good for? I don't really like gardening. Um, uh, not yet, maybe in retirement, but even then I don't think so. But I mean, I don't want to be a Mesopotamian gardener. And if that's the image of the beginning and that's the image of the end, oh, I'm not entirely sure I'm on board, you know. But if like Walton and others, uh, Greg Beale and others who, who've convincingly argued that the creation narrative is set within um, uh, robust temple imagery um, and, and they unpack what that means, then then there's this teleological or purposive view that creation is for a purpose. Creation is for some end point and, and we need to find out what that is. Um, second, there's this what we might call a Christological anthropology. There's a view of the human which is defined as much by Christ as it is by anything else. So that when we get to Philippians and Colossians and we read that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, then we have to see ourselves as an image of the image. We're an image of Christ who, who himself is an image of the invisible God. Then that changes how we think about creation fall, redemption, new creation. Um, we're not simply saved from our sins. We're, we're also um, united to Christ in order to, in some sense, have some of the attributes of God that only he can give by uniting us to him. Um, thirdly, there would be this idea of the process of how we are divinized or the process of how we're saved or the process of how we're sanctified, whatever term we really want. And that's where church and sacraments and prayer, good works, that, that's where that becomes really important. Um, this, this theology that we're given in scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, this as we know is not an excuse to do nothing. This is, this is the motivation for us to want to work for Christ, to, to be like Christ. And that's key. And then finally, there's this final goal, if you like, of union with Christ. The, this this end time vision of a renewed and new creation, heavens and earth, in which, as as T. F. Torrance uh, I believe once said, um, heaven is Christ shaped, 
and all that is within it is Christ-shaped. I, I like that because there's a goal, there's a reason, there's a purpose. So, so we bring those four things together. It helps us reread, in a sense, the creation narratives, the, the narrative of Israel, of Jesus, of the church, and then what's about to come in terms of eschatology. With that in mind, I mean, if you, you know, see the, the incarnation, not would you say that the incarnation is not simply a rescue mission? I mean, was, was, is there something uh, in the incarnation that is maybe intended from, from the beginning? Or, or, or would it maybe have not been accomplished in that way had the fall not taken place? Or however you sort of hash that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great question, and it's one that, that many moderns don't like to entertain because um, if there are certain forms of um, Bartians and, and, and others, they immediately say that's speculation and we shouldn't do it. But the church has asked this question for, um, well, nearly 1,800 years and has, you know, had various answers. Um, if there was no fall, would Christ still come? And, and so I clearly subscribe to a view that... Um, uh, Edwin Van Driel in the States is, is called incarnation anyway, which is a nice, easy term. Um, yeah, Christ always was going to come. Uh, and again, that's that's key to a, to a view of theosis. Um, Christ was always going to come because it's not simply sin that he has to remedy, although in a, in a post-Genesis 3 world, it is sin, clearly, and that necessitates the cross. But but that's the cross work of Christ. Christ still had to come to unite us to the Father, to tell us who the Father is, to reveal God to us. And everything we have up to the cross, is it not telling us, is it not speaking to us, is it, is it not revealing to us through Christ and the Spirit, this is actually who God is. So that Paul, you know, when he comes to, to the book of Ephesians, one of his favorite words, mysterion in Greek, this, this great mystery that's now been revealed, uh, that Christ is the key to everything. Oh, that's who God is. That's who Yahweh is, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That, that's what salvation means. It means not simply to be saved from our sins. It's to be saved for Christ, for God, for holiness, for shalom. And so all of that stuff would say that there is no simple rescue mission plan B. Always from the beginning, God wanted us to unite us to himself for us to participate in, in the triune life of love and glory and goodness as creatures, for us to be like Christ, because only when we're like Christ and in Christ can we know the Father is Father, the Son is Son, and the Holy Spirit is the bond of union between them. And so, yeah, we would, we would clearly, and I would clearly argue for an incarnation anyway, uh, technically a, 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 um, a superlapsarian Christology is, is what it's called. Uh, I did some study on this a few years back, wrote, a, wrote an essay on it to try and convince my students and others that um, this wasn't stupid, it was actually deeply biblical. And um, a number of uh, scholars in the past, uh, a guy called Carroll and a bunch of others, had done some exhaustive studies of church history. And actually, it, it's shown that the majority of theologians in church history uh, subscribe to some form of incarnation anyway. Hmm. Um, yeah, which is interesting. It's just in the modern period that's that's tended to slip out of favor because, again, it's a Genesis 3, Revelation 20 sort of narrative rather than Genesis 1, Revelation 22. Yeah, I see what you mean. That's interesting. So kind of, but whether the incarnation would have happened anyway, in any case, it does seem that there is um, something redemptive or, or salvific that happens not just on the cross, but but you know in in the manger in Bethlehem. That 
Um, just that very act of God taking on flesh. I think you say uh, in your book that I mentioned earlier, uh, the incarnation of the Son represents a divinizing of humanity to the humanizing of divinity. And uh, you follow that up with the incarnation is redemptive, even on its own. And yeah. can, can, you unpack, can you unpack what that looks like a little bit? Yeah, and, and that's, uh, and I understand, you know, that, that on first blush sounds incredibly controversial and is, is often mistaken. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the first to use that language. I'm not that clever. Um, but it's often mistaken. So uh, I would agree that, yeah, the incarnation is in itself redemptive, but it's not the the totality of redemption. So this is not a doctrine, at least as I use it, this is not a doctrine of universalism. That simply when uh, it's called a physical theory of, of redemption, that when Christ becomes human, all humanity is now united to God and saved. That would be one form of universalism. And it's not, not something I subscribe to. Um, no matter how nice that, that idea is, I just I can't find it in Scripture. So from people like Bart and, and Thomas Torrance, James Torrance and, and, and others, Andrew Purvis today, um, from this type of theology, again, we, we, we read Scripture and it does seem to us that in the incarnation, when Christ takes to himself, um, when the eternal son takes to himself a human nature, that all humanity as was promised, is now fulfilled. All humanity is now united to Christ. In very blunt terms, Christ owns us. Christ is the image of which we are images of. So we bear his image. You know, what Caesars give to Caesar, what's Christ give to Christ, this sort of thing. Um, so there is a form of redemption already at the incarnation. It's, it's proleptic. It's anticipatory. God already knows that in a world of sin that that necessitates the cross and all that entails, and, and the incarnation is, is the key beginning of that. And so there is this uniting of humanity to Christ. I mean, personally, I think this gives the theological coherence to, to why all humanity is resurrected on the last day, um, both those that are in Christ and those who aren't. It's because even if you aren't savingly united to Christ, consciously uh, a Christian, a believer, a Christ follower, whatever language we want, you're still raised to life because we bear the image of Christ, not simply some bland image of some fictitious humanity. So Christ owns us. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has even forgiven us, um, I would say, through his life. And then, yes, his death and resurrection. Um and, and that has a universal effect. It doesn't put people into heaven crudely because there is still human agency. There's still belief. There's still faith. There's still trust. There's still good works, etc. But it certainly does something significant. It doesn't simply pave the way for something significant in the death of Christ and then his resurrection. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the distinction you made that, that, that doesn't entail universalism. Um, and I wonder if it, another uh, another way to sort of put that. I'm a big fan of the language of recapitulation, um, and uh, you know, as you see it in Paul and in the second century Father Irenaeus, and and uh, I, I was so interested in it. I, I spent some time writing a, a short book on the subject. Um, but the, the idea that what Christ does is he initiates a second kind of humanity, and so that you are in one or the other. You are a human in the image of Adam or you're a human in the image of Christ. And so that, you know, as you, you know, as you said, there is a sense also in which, you know, maybe everyone is joined to Christ in some way. There is a unique way 
in which, you know, that because Christ redeems humanity, you know, in general, but there's also yep. a unique way in which we as Christians uh, sort of find ourselves in a different kind of humanity than we were before. Is yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes, makes full sense of, of language like we are new creations, the old has gone, the new has come. Um, what it means to be the church, the body of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. But that's where that's where theology, I hope, you know, becomes useful because we do talk in some subtlety. We do introduce some nuance. So uh, redemption isn't this massive sledgehammer that means the same thing everywhere, you know, to redeem, to ransom, uh, recapitulate. Uh, the early church loved this idea of the, in Latin, this merifica commutatio, this this wonderful exchange that that God, um, uh, the eternal Son who is perfect and holy and, and timeless and not bound by space, humbles himself, takes on a physical finite form without ceasing to be God. So he is bound by space and he is bound by time and he has partial knowledge as a human. Um, even if you follow Bart and Torrance, even he even takes to himself a fallen humanity and, and operates out of that. And in exchange, we get through salvation, we get holiness, we get perfection, we get those attributes that aren't natural to us. We were kind of talking earlier about how this idea has um, found itself in, in different Christian traditions. And um, it is, and, and, you, and you discuss this in, in, in your book on Torrance and, and uh, Theosis, Thomas Torrance, who, who um, you know had this notion of sort of like an incarnational uh, kind of redemption, um, yeah. um, but but he, in a, in some senses, gets it from Calvin. This is something I think uh, Marcus Peter Johnson has written about as well. He has a book called One with Christ and Evangelical Theology of Salvation, where he notes that that union with Christ idea uh, in in Calvin and and you know I, I go to a, a, a Wesleyan school and you know it's all over John Wesley. I mean you see it in particular in their view of entire sanctification, but. Um, it's it's not foreign to the West. We just call it different things. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, but 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 at the same time, yeah, there there are there are distinctions in the ways that we talk about it. Calvin thinks about it differently than Wesley thinks about it. Uh, you know, a Baptist might think of it differently than an Eastern Orthodox would. Uh, but you know, there are all these ways that there's, there's a central idea that I think is runs throughout church theology, but manifests itself in different ways as as I see it. Yeah, yeah, entirely. Um, I mean, a, a lot of work on on theosis, particularly out of Eastern Orthodoxy, um, is written as if there is one doctrine of theosis. There's a doctrine of theosis, and that simply isn't true. That would like that would be akin to you and I saying there's there's a doctrine of salvation. Well, there's not. There, there, there's many different um, doctrines of salvation in different people's hands and different traditions' hands, but. You're right. If it's Christian, there will be a consistent core to that teaching, despite some of the differences. And so it, it's better to talk about doctrines of salvation. It's better to talk about doctrines of, of theosis. And yeah, there are Wesleyan ways to construe that. There are Arminian and Calvinistic ways to do it. There are there are multiple Eastern Orthodox ways. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's at least three different ways the Orthodox talk about this. Norman Russell's um, gone to lengths to, to lay that out historically. Yeah, and that's important. But the, if the core is there, then it'll be a Christian and biblically faithful core. And that's what we're all sort of grappling with, aren't we? Our, our reach exceeds our, our grasp. Um, we're, all, we're all grappling with what can't be fully known or fully comprehended, but we can at least apprehend, we can begin to understand as God reveals to us. That's right. Now, um, 
it, it seems to me, and I'm interested in hearing what you think about this, um, that this idea has some value for uh, systematic uh, theology, how we kind of arrange these ideas and, and defending the faith, apologetics. Uh, and one example that, that came to my mind was, it seems that you get this question a lot, you know, as a Christian, you know, um, why couldn't God just forgive us instead of taking on human nature and dying on a cross? Moses mm. provides something of an answer to that question. As you suggested yourself, even without the fall, uh, the incarnation might still have happened. Yeah, see, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, we, we just have this, this uh, it's rampant in Western Christianity. Uh, I mean, I haven't spent much time um, in terms of sort of Eastern Orthodoxy on the ground, you know, in terms of Russia and Romania, not yet at least, be, be nice to, but so I don't know what's happening there, but certainly in the West, um, we've got these really instrumentalist and individualized ideas of, of Christianity, of everything, but of Christianity and of salvation. Um, you know, I was brought up fundamentalist and, and, and now evangelical and, and four spiritual laws, you know, um, once saved, always saved, this type of type of stuff. And I'm not saying I reject that, but it's a little bit simplistic. Um, whereas if we have a grander view of the, the, the narrative of Scripture, the story, it's teaching, and a more, I argue, a more central view of what Christ is, who Christ is and what he's doing, then it enriches everything. So um, when I teach, every other year I teach a course on the Spirit and Trinity, and as part of that course, interesting enough, I have an assessment as an optional one. I give them various various topics. One of them is for them to to produce a gospel tract. It doesn't have to be the old, you know, printed little um, little little A5 thing. Um, it can be a YouTube clip. It can be any sort of audio visual, whatever it is. But produce a, a four-minute presentation of the gospel that is, in its emphasis, prospective, not retrospective. So, yes, we have to talk about the cross, and we have to talk about salvation from sins for it to be the gospel. Absolutely. And, and sure, ultimately, we have to talk about uh, resurrection, um, judgment, new heavens, new earth. Absolutely. But what about between salvation, coming to Christ, and death? And for many people, you know, in, in the world today, that could be 50, 60, 70 years or, or more. Um, I want you to give me the gospel of those 60, 70 years. Why, why, why do people remain Christians? And, and what do they crudely put? What do they get out of it? What's the good news? What's the euangelion? What does Christ do? And, and it's met normally by absolute stunned silence by students. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? What? What, what would I do for that? And so I give them a bunch of resources and send them off. And, and they, they come back with their eyes open that being a Christian between death and uh, between, uh, you know, justification and then de our physical death actually is incredibly important, incredibly rich. And the scriptures have a lot to say about what it means to be in Christ, in the spirit here and now, participating in the foretaste of eschatological glory, whilst the world is still suffering under the bondage of sin and death and decay. We have something to say to our neighbors. We have something to say to our friends and our family who don't yet know Christ. And it's not simply you can not go to hell. And it's not simply some sort of creationist argument. It's also a present imperative. And I think that's important for us to recapture. So to, to maybe bring this home a little bit, um, how has this idea of a theosis shaped how you might see Christmas? Yeah, well, that's interesting, given, you know, it's Advent and, and we're coming up to the celebration of the story. Um, I mean, it's deeply 
personal in the sense that, not that we can't talk about it, but that different people will talk about this in, in different ways as we would with any relationship. But um, the contrast is that, that we go to our churches and we watch our nativity plays and, and sing the Christmas carols, some of them. And, and in our minds, whether it's overt or not, it's probably more subconscious, I think many churchgoers uh, are, in a sense, they're clearing their throats emotionally. Yes, yes, this is important. Christmas is important. But it's only important because of Easter. And Easter's the big deal. This is only important so Christ can be born, so there can be a sacrifice, so that there can be a, a, a perfect Lamb of God to take away our sin of the world. And that's the only reason. And so when we have that attitude, we turn Christ not 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 uh, from a person into simply a commodity. What do I get from Christ? Well, I get his death and resurrection, therefore I get forgiveness of sins. We get a transaction. We get a, a legal contract, if you like. And, and I don't think that's good enough, and it's certainly not intimate. Um, the alternate view, if Christ is central to history, not simply because of sin, which occasions his death on the cross, but if he's central to history because before the foundation of the world, he was elect by, Christ, uh, by God because he is the one through whom the Father created. He's the one by whom and for whom, as we're told, the, the universe was created. If he's the reason for it, then his life becomes hugely significant because after the resurrection, he ascends and he continues to live today, the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so his life becomes the model for ours. We partake and we participate through the sacraments and what he does. And so when it comes to Christmas, when it comes to, to remembering and celebrating and rethinking and experiencing the, the, the birth of the Messiah, the prophesied one, the one that was coming, that they'd waited so long for, where God finally spoke and his, his word took on flesh and dwelt amongst us, it's because we love him, not simply what he does. And I think all Christian worship ultimately, at its most mature, and I hope to get there someday myself, is to worship God ultimately, the Father, Son, and Spirit, for who they are, not simply for what they've done. It's to move in technical language from the economic trinity, the way God works in the world, to the imminent trinity, to who God is in himself, and to be completely bound up and in love with with God, not simply what God does. And, and I know we don't want to make that too radical a distinction, um, but I think it's important. And then the only way to talk about that more meaningfully is to use analogies, you know, um, uh, a, a great marriage relationship. Um, you love your spouse not, not simply for what they do, not for what they do for you or, or will do for you, um, if that's the only reason, well, you know, um, you, you might want to pay someone to do housekeeping and you might want to pay someone to do the lawns or you might want to, you know what I mean? Uh, we love them because of who they are. And yes, they do stuff and you do stuff, absolutely. Uh, but it's not the stuff they do, it's it's who they are. And I think that's the re reminder that perhaps this theology gives us at Christmas that doesn't separate Christ from the cross, but it brings the cross into greater relief that this God who loves us in Christ Jesus, who reconciles us through his life and his death and his resurrection, this is the one we remember on, at Christmas. Now, if somebody you know wanted to 
you know, maybe celebrate Christmas by uh, reflecting on, on some of these truths we've been talking about and their significance for our lives. Are there any resources that you might point them to? There's, there's your book, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure they want to read Theosis and the Theology of T.F. Torrance oh, as, I, as Christmas I, reading. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like it. Um, actually, so, um, uh, Athanasius is on the Incarnation comes to mind. This is uh, yeah. a pretty old one, but, uh, but a, a great one. Very readable, you know, free online. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's a hard question because a lot of this stuff is still, at the moment, is is highly academic in mm -hmm. genre and, and intentionally so because it's making um, uh, quite particular claims and, and wanting to be clear to explicate those well. Um, at the more popular level, it's much, much harder to find really good stuff. Um, I think Baxter Kruger's stuff, um, K-R-U-G-E-R. -E he has a number of, of pamphlets, you know, little, little booklets. Um, he, he has his own ministry, Perichoresis Ministry. At a more popular level, I think he's got stuff. Um, the Undoing of Adam, Home, uh, just to name two. Uh, again, they're, they're very cheap, very affordable. Um, that sort of stuff at a more popular level begins to get it. Um, at a ministerial level, I think Andrew Purves, P-U-R-V-E-S, um, just recently retired from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's got a, a two books, The Crucifixion of Ministry and The Resurrection of Ministry. I think they're both small, easy to read, IVP books. They're, they're wonderful uh, around this sort of stuff. Um, those would be places to go. Um, there's some more academic works. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Norman Russell has a number of works on theosis in the tradition. He's got a very small one out of, um, I think it's St. Vladimir's, uh, seminary Press, uh, Fellow Workers with God, very readable, very good. Um, so those would be places perhaps to start. Uh, in 2018, um, there's a bunch of us contributing to a book that Jared Ortiz is, is editing um, called With All the Fullness of God, Engaging Deification Across Christian Traditions, and that'll have a, a chapter um, or two on, on the practice of theosis. Hmm. And then the, the other one that comes to mind actually is a, an essay written um, Wendy Corbin Reuschling um, in the Journal of, of Theological Interpretation, published in 2014 on the ethics of theosis, um, which I thought was very good, very usable. So perhaps those are some resources. We're, we're yet to have some really good um, ministerial and then more popular works yet, I think. Those are coming. Sure. Now, so you, you mentioned a project you're, you're contributing to. Um, do you have anything else that in the works coming up in any projects, any, any books, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's always stuff on the go. Um, Tenty Clark are doing a whole range of companions and, and handbooks. And so um, a few of us are, are working on some of those. There'll be a TNT Clark um, companion to TF Torrance coming out in uh, 18 months. Uh, TNT Clark companion to Colin Gunton, which I think is uh, really badly needed. So there's some of those academic works. Um, I've also tried my hand at, at writing one of these um, lower level, more popular trade paperback books. My first attempt at that after sort of 15 or 16 books. Um, and so that'll come out probably March, April next year with Cascade Press. And that's uh, a book on heaven, an inkling of what's to come, where I um, just simply walk people through uh, expectations on new heavens, new earth, try to correct myths and um, inspire within them this Christ-centered vision. In a, in a way, it's an outworking of this idea of theosis, although 
I don't believe I ever used that term in, in, in that book <laughs> deliberately. And, and then taking sort of a, a C.S. Lewis type approach um, to the more educated, creative, imaginative aspects, which I think apocalyptic is meant to inspire within us. So that should come out, yeah, of Cascade um, uh, early, mid next year, heaven an inkling of what's to come. Quite excited about that one. That's awesome. Now, as someone listening earlier may have gleaned, um, there may be some trouble uh, in, in, in pronouncing or guessing the spelling of your name. Uh, so would, would you uh, clarify that for us, Jeff? Yeah, so my father's Dutch. So it's a, it's a Dutch name, Mike, M-Y-K, um, like Michael, and, and Harbits, H-A-B-E-T-S. All said with a Kiwi accent, of course, which complicates it. So that, that that would be uh, that would be the spelling they'd want to type into the Google machine if they wanted to uh, uh, look look into some of your your works or follow get get in touch with you and or whatever. I, I believe I'm, I'm I, I might be the only one actually on the internet, Mike Harbert. So it's not hard to find. Yeah, it's 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 a well actually. So uh, yeah, but you got an email for me. I go by the name Cody Cook, uh, but my my uh, full name actually my first name is David. And so there's, right. there's, and actually my middle name is Cody. So David C. Cook, I can't use because there's David C. Cook. <laughs> you know, publishers, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also. So anyways, <laughs> I, had to, I had to go by my middle name. Uh, but man, Mike, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I, uh, uh, Merry Christmas to you. And, and thank you for taking time to do this. And uh, I, I uh, very much recommend your works to anybody who's found this, uh, uh, this conversation interesting. And uh, thank you. Thanks, Cody. And, and, and Merry Christmas to you and your listeners as well. Thank you. Christ was born